The reading today is Mark chapter 2, it's on page 1003. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard what he, that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him into Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that, that, was, that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, We have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, but there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came to them and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, 
Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abatha the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord over even the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. I do keep uh, that passage of the Bible uh, open before you this morning as uh, I give it a lot of attention. Well, parents and grandparents normally take a great interest, if not pride even, in what their children uh, do, what kind of careers they pursue, what kind of work they do. Well, God had one son and he made him a preacher. Jesus came to teach, to tell people about God, what he's like, and what God's plans were, and particularly how it was that human beings could be forgiven their sins and get to be at peace with God, gain access. He's their friend again. And then how they are transformed to be like him and how they play their part, our part, in fulfilling God's plans and purposes. Well, in this passage, we find Jesus first to at Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee, And he starts teaching in somebody's ordinary house, which of course can't contain the crowd that Jesus by now is attracting. And we read, verse 2, that he preached the word to them. And verse 13, once again Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd gathered and he began to teach them. In response to his teaching, Jesus also answered questions. Verse 19 when uh, they want clarification, and again in verse 25. He even asks his own questions of his hearers, verse 9, which is a very engaging way of, uh, of teaching people. You ask them questions. It helps you feel you've got to be alert. You know, you never know. I might one day say, what's the answer to that? That would kind of, you know, terrified looks. Yeah, I might do that. Yes, just pay attention in case um, I ask you a question. So, but it is a way of engaging people. And throughout this chapter, um, a number of different themes abound. There's service, you know, these four guys who bring their friend to Jesus, verse 3, to be healed. There's Jesus' authority, which is quite striking. He claims to be able to forgive sins. You know, not the kind where I wrong you or you wrong me, but ones where ultimately you've wronged God. You see that in 5 and 10. He has authority over a man, verse 16, and over the Sabbath, which of course was God's invention for the people of the Old Testament. And his priorities throughout the whole of this chapter are in preaching, verse 2, forgiveness, verse 5, and in sinners, not the self-righteous kind. They're almost kind of um, lost but in those who are penitent, those who recognise who Jesus is and recognise, yeah, he alone can forgive us our sins. And they've all been emphasised in chapter 1, but now there are two new elements in chapter 2. Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. 
And this is how he usually refers to himself. In the Old Testament, that term son of man can simply just mean a man. You know, you are a son of a man. I'm your father. But also from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, 13 and 14, the son of man is somebody who is like a ruler and a judge who comes from heaven to earth to reign over everyone forever. So it's a bit subtle, it's a bit uh, enigmatic, if you like. Jesus invites his listeners to work out which he is. Is he just an ordinary man like them? Or is he actually a divine one from heaven? But as Jesus shows his hands more clearly, opposition to him grows. The establishment in the form of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious kind of... uh, elite of their day, uh, they react to him. They don't really want him to get any greater following than he's got. And they begin a sort of gradual escalation of their kind of complaints against him. They start by uh, murmuring amongst themselves, verse 6, and then to the disciples, verse 17, and then directly to Jesus in 18 and 24. And these things will come out as we look at each episode in this particular chapter. So you have the first one, the healing of this paralytic guy. Let's take a look at it. Jesus, verse 2, is preaching the word to them. He was a man with a message. He was a broadcaster, if you like. He was telling the news, the good news. It's from God and they previously would not have known most of what he had to say. That's what Jesus wanted to do. But his reputation as a miracle worker had gone before him. And these four men, they had either seen or heard him performing miracles that we've read about in chapter 1. And they have this friend who is paralysed. And who knows... There are others in the New Testament who are paralysed and they have been paralysed from birth. This guy may be one like that. And um, they're nothing if not persistent. They know this Jesus can actually do it. They've seen it, they've heard about it. They can do for their friend what no one else can do. And they know he can do it because they've seen him do it already. So they get to the house and they find they can't get in the door. It's too crowded. They can't get in through the windows. So what do they do? They go up on the roof. You have to bear in mind their roofs are flat. Yeah, they'll have had some wooden planks across and probably smaller ones going the other way and they'd cover them with mud. So you can see why they have this kind of phrase that they dug through the roof because that's what they do. They dug through the roof. But they got their friend to Jesus. They wrecked the roof in the process, but they got their friend to Jesus. You know, they loved their friend so much that they would take him to somebody who they knew could do something that no one else could do for him. Now imagine if you're there, you know, you've got this, it wouldn't be obviously as big as this, um, picture sort of a bungalow with a flat roof type kind of thing. But imagine you're there, you're actually in the room. 
and there's this dirty great hole has appeared and you've probably got yourself covered in old bits of mud and bits of kind of wood and there's this paralytic on the, on the floor on a stretcher laid out and there's four men they probably sort of jump down to be around him and they're all looking at Jesus and you're looking at Jesus and everybody else is looking at Jesus and the days before he has healed hundreds of people no doubt who have been had most incurable diseases not just incurable then but incurable now and they've been kind of instant, you know, lepers who acquire their sort of normal kind of digits back, having kind of, um, you know, had them all damaged. You know, it's there, it's visible, it can be seen. They're not colourable people. It's kind of eyewitness evidence. That's the scene. Now, what do you think they expected Jesus to do? Well, you'd expect Jesus to heal the man, wouldn't you? But what does Jesus do? Nothing. He doesn't do anything. Instead he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now how would you f would feel if you were that paralytic? You know, lying there. You know that he's done all this. He can, he can easily just uh, restore you to kind of you know, life as you're meant to have had it. You know, They've seen and heard that he did it the day before and the day before that. And he says to you, your sins are forgiven. You know, it's a shock to people, isn't it? It's a shock to him, it's a shock to his friends, it's a shock to the crowd, it's a shock even to the scribes and Pharisees. And they immediately spot the significance of what Jesus has said. The Pharisees say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And so he says to them, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk? How would you answer? Which is easier? Well, obviously, it's to say that your sins are forgiven, isn't it? After all, you don't know whether they are or not. There's no obvious kind of change going to take place. There's no evidence. It's much harder to say to a paralytic, stand up, walk off. So Jesus says, okay, I'll do the miracle to demonstrate that I have authority to forgive sins. Notice, though, that the priority that Jesus has is to forgive sins. The miracle is done merely to support his claim that he is able to do that. I think that's a vitally important point to note. Jesus was not kind of some first century freelance health service. He does miracles on comparatively few occasions. And he does them... For a reason. He does them so as to show who he is, so they illustrate his identity. <coughs> Only God can control nature. Only God can give life. Only God can restore what has decayed. And that's why the miracles were done so that people would be able to spot 
that God had arrived on earth. Now notice in verse 12 the little phrase, in full view of them, the paralytic, he gets up as he's told to by Jesus and he walks out. This ability of Jesus to do miracles was never questioned, even by those who kind of strongly opposed him, the scribes and the Pharisees. And they weren't gullible people. They'd had no, they would have known this paralytic guy in their community. They may have known him all his life. They may have known that he was born that way. And they could see that a miracle had taken place. What they were left to decide is who did this. Is God at work in this Jesus? Or is he of the devil? And as you know from last week, they sometimes opted for the latter. They were confronted with a supernatural act. It's just a question of working out whether it's a malevolent force or a benign one. Well, next the calling of Levi. If we just uh, look at that again. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many of the uh, tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is, not the healthy, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So notice once again, Jesus is teaching. Notice again, he shocks his followers. Do you, now, do you think that these Galileans that we saw him call last week, you know, Peter, James, John, Andrew, would have naturally wanted to befriend Levi, who was a tax collector. Tax collectors in those days had a kind of... Um, well, first of all, they accommodated to the Roman occupying forces, which strict Jews would not do. But they kind of ran a business. The Romans would say, we want um, you know, 100 quid raised in tax. So what the tax collectors did was they'd raise 150 quid from the people. So not only did the people not like them because basically they were having to give money to the Romans, they knew they were also being ripped off by these tax collectors. So they were not exactly flavour of the month. They were sort of ostracised in their society. But Jesus has got time for this guy. No one is too bad to be called by to follow Jesus. And Levi does. Jesus says, follow me, and he causes Levi to not only do so, but he enables him to sacrifice, to give up his former life, which would have made him very wealthy, even if unpopular, a life in which he was previously stuck. Jesus is somebody who is inclusive upon repentance. If you recognise you're wrong particularly you know, not putting God first in your life, then it'll take you on board. 
as long as you're penitent. Now, this guy, this tax collector, was as, in a sense, stuck in his life as the paralytic was, was stuck in his limitations. Both have to get up and follow Jesus. And if they're honest, a lot of people today are stuck. Stuck in a lifestyle that may not really be as happy as they might like it to be. They have a sense that this is not kind of what it should be like, and yet they're stuck in it. Maybe they have a sense of security in it, but Jesus says, I want you to have a full life, an abundant life, a life the kind of way I intended you to live. And Jesus has both the attraction and the power to free us from any life that's stuck in a kind of moral mess. Now Levi's been liberated. Jesus for him spells freedom. He's got out of that life. And what does he immediately do? He invites others to meet Jesus. He has them round for a meal and he gets Jesus to come. I mean, we have larger scale kind of guest supper type events here at church. But there's nothing to stop anybody who's a church member just to invite a couple of their Christian friends and half a dozen of their non-Christian friends round for a meal. And, uh, well, say, I don't know, say a meal before Christmas and say, I'm just going to sort of spend 20 minutes or so during the meal, get one of my friends to explain what the real meaning of Christmas is and see what kind of discussion might take place. So here we see again Jesus is attacking the establishment. Jesus can't be a holy man, the Pharisees think, because he's mixing with sinners, in inverted commas, those who are particularly uh, ostracised by the Jewish community. He's, he's associating with these obvious dodgy guys, these tax collectors. They say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' reply is that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, doctors can only help us if we recognise that we're ill. If we somehow carry on thinking we're healthy, we won't even go to them, let alone be able to get any help from them. But if you know you're, you're ill, and if you know that only the doctor can prescribe the right kind of medicine to get rid of your particular infection or whatever it is, then you'll go and you'll ask for their help. Now, in fact, Jesus is a physician of the soul rather than a physician of the body. And he is one who is on call 24-7 and he's one who's able to give us instant attention. We just have to know that it is through him that we can offload our guilt. It's from him that we can be free from the power of sin. In verses 18 to 20, we have um, the question about fasting. 
John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. So, questions, how come these people fast and yet Jesus' disciples don't fast? Fasting was quite a common practice in their day, but they didn't fast when there was a wedding, and a wedding in those days could last almost a week. And in that period, fasting was suspended. And Jesus is saying that he is the bridegroom, that they are the potential bride, that he's come, and it's a time of celebration, not a time of fasting. But there's a clear hint that he knows his fate because he says he will be taken from them. And then 21 and 22, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. John the Baptist and his followers fasted because they were preparing for the coming of the king, for the new age. And Jesus is saying, he's come. The king has arrived. The new age has dawned. There's no need to sort of patch up an old piece of cloth. There's no need for the old wineskins. No, new cloth and new wineskins, they are available now in this new age. In the Bible, there are four ages. There's the age of creation, when everything was perfect. Then there was the fall, the age when everything has gone wrong. And then, 2,000 years ago, God broke into the world in the person of Jesus. And the new age dawned. And the new age will, uh, if you like, uh, reach its climax, its consummation, when Jesus appears again. They are the four ages. So the new age has come. And then there is the Lord of the Sabbath, which uh, we can read. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. And that was quite legitimate. They were allowed to do that. The poor could kind of uh, pick up uh, ears of corn that lay around the sort of side of the field that hadn't been harvested. That was quite legit. So they weren't kind of being accused of theft by the Pharisees. The Pharisees said, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Because as far as the, the Pharisees defined it, picking an ear of corn constituted work and you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. So they were incredibly legalistic, were these Pharisees. And Jesus' answer is this, look, David in the Old Testament, he didn't starve. He wasn't constrained by these formal rules. He stresses that the Sabbath was made for man to rest. It was a reminder that God wanted to us to enter into an eternal rest with him. And he, Jesus, is claiming authority to decide what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. Yet another claim to be divine, 
because God instituted the Sabbath. And again, the scribes, the Pharisees, and their followers have to decide, is this guy Jesus being blasphemous, or is he for real? Is he in telling the truth? Is he, in fact, God come among them? Now, it's easy to go through the episodes in detail, and we must do that to see what Jesus is, is, is saying. But we mustn't miss the wood from the trees. So let's be clear, let's be focused what this chapter teaches us about Jesus. What is he about? He wants to get across a quite a simple message that he is God, that he's come to forgive sins, and forgiveness happens when we turn and follow him. And once that's happened to us, what should we do? Well, as in the case of the paralytic, bring friends to Jesus so he can do for them what no one else can do. Or, in the case of Levi, invite friends to hear Jesus. Search out those who know they're sick and are prepared to listen and have them round and introduce him to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity with which Jesus goes about his uh, work of uh, bringing his, his person and his message to people. May we be able to see very clearly, weigh up the evidence for ourselves, that he was God on earth. May we realise that only through him is God able to forgive us our sins which are against him primarily. And may we uh, embrace that wonderful offer of forgiveness and transformation and abundant life and peace with God. Amen.